doing? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I want to um, pick up where we left off last week and talk a little bit about, again, justice. If you recall, uh, last week we mentioned that we... Um, that as we read through more and more of Scripture, we discovered that God, or we discover that God is very much concerned with the idea of justice. He's he he is actually the themes of justice and the themes of righteousness are intertwined often in the Bible, meaning that practicing righteousness is not just what we do and refrain from as individuals, but it is what we are doing in the lives of others. So we all, we, and we also learned that righteousness is not just demonstrated in what we have stopped doing for ourselves or stopped doing uh, to ourselves, but it is very much reflected in what we are doing for others. It's not just what you refrain from, but it is what you start doing that constitutes and defines righteousness. We discovered that a pursuit also of intellectual holiness, which is basically just Growing in holiness as it relates to knowledge, just getting more and more and more and more knowledge of God. Absent a life of physical holiness, which means at the least serving people in the love of God around you. But that's not in accordance to God's will. At least as we read in Isaiah 58 and as we read in other places. And not only, not only is it not in accordance to God's will, but it also will leave us absent of the light and the life that he seeks to bring not only to us and in us, but through us. And lastly, we turned our attention to Jesus before we close out uh, last week. In the, and, and we turned our attention to the reality that he is the one who sets the captives free. He is the one that came to heal the brokenhearted. He is the one who became poor that we might be made rich. And in him, we find not only the one who saves us from the penalty of unrighteousness, but he gives us his righteousness. And in so giving us his righteousness, we find motivation for pursuing righteousness. The the righteousness that we pursue is, is birth out of what we've been given. You'll hear that a couple of times this morning. I ended, in fact, last week on a quote from Brian Stevenson, the professing Christian who's, uh, the professing Christian lawyer whose life is, is recently been on prominent display. There was a movie, there's a movie that's out, um, right now that, 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 that my family and, and, and my mother and all of us, we went to see, um, here in the theaters, um, on MLK Day. And the movie is called Just Mercy. In the movie, he, he, he makes this quote, but it's also in his book, the book, Just Mercy. And I want to begin the same way we ended last week with a quote from Brian Stevenson. He says, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true, me- the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, accused, incarcerated, and the condemned. Reading from this morning's text from Matthew, it would appear that Jesus holds a similar sentiment. It would appear that Jesus has something to say about what defines the character and the nature of Christians. One of the reflections of a heart that has been awakened to the realities of the gospel is a deep and abiding thirst and passion to help the helpless, to meet those, to meet the needs, rather, of those in need, 
to be present with those who have been abandoned. Jesus seems to echo these lines in front of us this morning. So I want to look at three things in particular this morning. I want to look at the destination of the righteous. I want to look at the, des- uh, the nature of the righteous. And I want to look at the difference between the righteous and unrighteous. The destination, nature, and difference. Destination, nature, and difference. The destination of the righteous is simple, the kingdom of God. At the end of this life, there are only two types of people. Two kinds of people, those saved by grace through Jesus Christ or saved by by the grace of Christ through faith and those who are not. Those who will be granted eternal life because of that grace and faith and those who will not. Those who inherit eternal life and those who inherit eternal punishment. There is only two types of people in this life when it's all said and done. No one discussed the eternal matters of heaven and hell more than Jesus did. It's often an uncomfortable subject for us, but it was not for him. There is more to life after this life. There's a heaven and a hell to be experienced. And with Christ, and with Christ, this will be all the hell you will ever know. But without him, this will be all the heaven you will ever know. If there is not a heaven and hell to be experienced, then then it's a lie and Jesus told it. Because he spoke more of heaven and hell than anyone else in the Bible. And if Jesus is a liar, then we have to really begin to ask ourselves, what are we doing here wasting our time with the trivialities of church life? But if he is not a liar, then we must reckon with the reality that there is a hell. No one mentions it more than he does, and no one describes it in greater detail than he does. He calls it the place of unquenchable fire. He calls it the place where the worm does not die, but over and over and throughout eternity eternity, eats and eats and eats. He calls it the place where torment is eternal, where those who inhabit it will continuously weep and gnash their teeth in agony. God is a God of goodness, but God is a God of justice. So he has to speak about hell because if he is a God of goodness, then justice must be executed. And justice against the wicked is what hell is. So he has to speak about hell. But he also has to speak about hell because he desires that you and I avoid it at all costs. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. However, here's where things get really, really, really interesting for us. Jesus appears to draw these lines even clearer in Matthew chapter 25. And he seems to draw these lines in a way that are not just tied to right knowledge, orthodoxy. But he ties these lines to right practice, right doing, orthopraxy, as we talked about last week. Now, before we go any further, let me just... Make sure everybody's on the same page with me. I'm not talking about salvation by works. 
But I am talking about the exposure of our salvation by works. In other words, through our works, our salvation is exposed. What we believe and what we trust is made clear based on how we live. That's the destination of the righteous. The righteous shall be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven and the unrighteous shall be rejected from the kingdom and thrown into outer darkness, eternal damnation. But what is the nature of the righteous? What's the nature of the righteous? Let's set the stage again. So we're gathered around the throne. After Jesus' glorious return, Matthew 25 is declaring this glory or showing this glorious picture of Jesus with all of his angelic host and the people of all the nations are gathered. And then Jesus begins to separate sheep and goat. Now there's some speculation that, that, that the reason sheep and goat becomes a, a, a prominent theme in scripture is because they have very little difference, even though over time they've made clear distinction and you can see them, you can see the clear distinction now. There's some speculation that in ancient times, there wasn't nearly as much difference between the two. And so there's this separation based on not just what appears to be, but there's this separation based on what actually is, the nature of that person. And so in verse 24, he, or verse 34, the king says to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The separation begins, but it's not based on what we base separation on. There's no separation based on economic success. There's no separation based on social status and popularity or celebrity. There's separation based on those who have been blessed by the Father and out of that blessing have a nature that produces mercy. Those that have been blessed by the Father and out of that nature of blessing, they produce righteousness. Take note of these people that are declared righteous in verse 37. And let's highlight a a quick point about these people. First, the righteous do righteousness. Jesus says that they are feeding those that are hungry, quenching those that are thirsty, welcoming those that are considered strangers, clothing those who are naked, visiting those who are sick, visiting those who are in prison, visiting. And these are the people of God that have been alienated and isolated, and these people are ensuring that they are tended to. First, the household of God is tended to, but also God calls us to a greater calling in terms of how we love those that are in the world that are broken and poor and in need and homeless and suffering. 
basically making our point for us. The point from last week was that justice and mercy and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. And Jesus connects the title of righteous to the acts of righteousness. They aren't righteous because they do righteous acts, though. Remember, out of the blessing of the Father, they've been blessed by the Father. And we'll talk about what that blessing looks like in just a moment. But out of being blessed by the Father, they're producing righteousness. They aren't righteous because they do righteous acts. We can't do enough righteous acts to be righteous. We can't do enough righteous acts to earn our badge of righteousness. Jesus, by grace, through faith, calls us righteous, makes us righteous. But as those who have been declared righteous and made righteous, doing righteousness should be the natural outpouring of our new lives in Jesus. So first, the righteous do righteous things. But secondly, the righteous do righteousness not for what they will gain, but for what they have received. The righteous in verse 38 asks a very, very, very important question. Look at verse 38. When, and when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you or naked, uh, welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison or in prison and visit you? There's this sort of blissful ignorance there, but something more important is happening. They didn't need the needy to possess a status in order for them to feel the burden to help them. They didn't need the needy to possess a status. They didn't need the needy to have something in it for them in order to help them. They didn't need to feel like they would get some special recognition before they extended mercy. They helped, and later on, they say, oh, that was, I was helping you, Jesus, when I helped? They did righteousness out of the abundance of what they received rather than from a posture of trying to get something else. They did righteousness out of the abundance of what was given to them rather than from a posture of seeking attention or seeking position or seeking status. They extended mercy out of the abundance of mercy they've been given. See, folks, when you do justice, when you do righteousness, when you do mercy, are you doing it from the abundance of what you have received in Christ? or for the craving of what you desire. In other words, do you do mercy, and if you don't get thanks for mercy, you got a problem with it? When you treat somebody well, give a homeless person money, does it linger with you if that homeless person doesn't say thank you? I can't believe they didn't say thank you. Can you believe that? It just lingers with you for days on end. Where is the act of mercy coming from? If it's coming from the abundance of mercy that you've received, then you can get over not getting the thanks for it because you've already received what you deserved. And so you, out of the abundance of what's been given to you through Jesus, give to others. 
question not only determines whether we will even be active in serving those in need, but it determines whether or not we will serve them with the right motives. See, if it's not coming from the work of Jesus, but it's for the purpose of getting more, then typically you'll have to be, it'll be tough to get you to do it. You got to find motivating factors, right? Motivating factors like, do they deserve it? Well, I don't know. God never says thank you, so I'm not giving them anything. You got to find motivating factors for extending mercy when the motivation is not that you've, uh, the motivation is not that I have received mercy. Are you tracking with that? Paul, when he was describing his persistence in gospel ministry in 2 Corinthians, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world, making disciples who will seek to obey and follow Christ, attending to those in need with the love of Christ, and doing so through tremendous adversity, through tremendous trial, through tremendous difficulty. When he was describing that life, he describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Having this ministry by what? By God's mercy. What does that lead to? Me not losing heart. If I'm motivated by mercy rather than motivated by seeking or gaining or receiving something else, then I will endure in extending mercy, and I will endure in doing righteousness. Paul is fueled by gospel ministry. He's fueled by the ministry of mercy, but the fuel that he is receiving is mercy. See, we don't serve the unborn in order to gain life. We serve the unborn because through Christ we've received life. We don't serve the poor because we seek to be blessed with wealth. We serve the poor because through Christ, we who were once poor have been made rich. We don't clothe the naked in order to be blessed with some kind of fancy clothes. We clothe the naked because through Christ, we've been clothed with the garments of righteousness. We don't serve the homeless to get a house or the blessing of the house. We serve the homeless because Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. In other words, we serve out of the abundance of what we've already been given. Those that are standing around the throne on that day where Jesus says, come and enter into the kingdom because you fed me, because you clothed me, because you gave me drink, because you visited me when I was sick, because you visited me when I was in prison. They're like, I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't know that was you. We were just, we were just, doing, we were just doing what we were, what we were, just we were doing just what we were so blessed to do. It was just out of the abundance of what you had already done that we were doing it. But what about the unrighteous? First, their destination in verse forty-one. It says, "Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the internal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food; and I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink; and I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me; naked, and you did not clothe me; sick and in prison, and you did not visit me." Let 
These folks don't have the same nature. In fact, it, it, look at, listen to the nature. They will answer saying, verse 44, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These folks serve out the opportunity. These folks serve based on what yields the biggest bang for their buck. And so what they're saying is, in this moment, wait, wait, Jesus. I didn't, I didn't know that was you. If I knew that was you, I would have, I would have, man, I would have found a dollar, right? If I, if I knew that was you, I would have I found you a jacket. If I, if I knew that was you, I would have came and I would have visited you when you were sick. If I knew that was you, I would have I, I came and visited you in prison. If I knew that was you, I would have been there for you. In other words, I didn't know that guy was that important. I didn't know that lady was that deserving. I didn't know that child had that much value. When you look in the Gospels, you find a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 about a rich young ruler. He's the man that everybody perceives has value. He has his fancy clothes, wearing his purple garments. It's like the equivalent of Gucci or something. So he has his Gucci on and his true religion jeans, purple, every day walking back and forth, enjoying life, loving life, passing by a guy who's in rags, and eating crumbs from the ground, sick in his body, no money in his pocket. And both of those individuals die, and one goes to hell, this place that we've been dis- discussing this morning. One goes to heaven, as in, is welcomed into the kingdom. But it's not the one that you would think based on worldly mentalities and worldviews. The one who has everything in an instant has nothing. And the one who has nothing in an instant has everything. And it's a story about heaven and hell, but it's also a story about value. Now, see, sometimes we think that there are people that are in situations in which they appear helpless. And because they appear helpless, we feel like they were supposed to be there. They deserve to be there. And they don't deserve our help. Jesus has different opinions of those people. Those people will judge angels, many of them. Jesus has identified himself with them and says that I am them. And so these folks don't have the nature of Christ. And it's, it's evident in the posture in which they have towards everyone else. It's a selfish posture, a self-seeking posture. And let me tell you something about selfish, self-seeking hearts. 
Selfish, self-seeking hearts are hearts that reveal how little they understand how much they've been given. When you sit and you hold on to everything and you clench all of your goods, all of your worldly goods and possessions, and you try to make, try to make value calls on who's worthy of these goods and who's not worthy of these goods, then what you have yet to realize or how ignorant you are, or, or you are ignorant rather of the things in which you have been given, you have not realized how much you've been given. You haven't realized that nothing you own is yours. That it was all a blessing from God, including your salvation. That you didn't come to God good enough. And he said, well, man, I'm so glad we won you over. Come on, man. So great to have you on the team. No. No, you didn't come to God like that. You came to God empty. You came to him with nothing, no righteousness. He said, well, take mine. It's a hard text for us to read because what we read is like, okay, so wait a second, right? Looks like stingy people are going to hell in this text. What's going on? Hold on, Jesus, a little bit. You're taking us a little too fast, right? For our American sensibilities. This is what Spurgeon wrote about this text. He said this. I fear that there are some of you high professors who could not stand the test. Talking about this test that's happening right now in this, in this scripture. Good praying people, they call you. But what do you give to the Lord? Your religion has not touched your pockets. This, not, this does not apply to some of you, for there are many here of whom I would venture to speak before the bar of God that I know their substance to be consecrated to the Lord and his poor. And I have sometimes thought that they gave beyond their means to the poor. But there are others of a very different disposition. Now here I shall give you a little plain English talk, which none can fail to understand. You may talk about your religion till you have worn your tongue out. And you may get others to believe you. And you, re- you may remain in the church 20 years and nobody ever detect in you anything like an inconsistency. But if it is in your power and you do nothing to relieve the necessities of the poor members of Christ's body, you will be damned as surely as if you were drunkards or whoremongers. If you have no care for God's church, this text applies to you. And you will also surely sink to the lowest hell as if you have been common blasphemers. This is very plain English, but it is a plain meaning of the text. And it is at my peril that I flinch from telling you of it. I was hungry and you gave me what? Good advice. Yes, but no food. I was thirsty and you gave me what? A track and no drink. I was naked and you gave me what? Your good wishes but no clothes. I was a stranger and you pitied me, but you did not take me in. I was sick and you said you could recommend me a doctor, but you did not visit me. I was in prison. I, God's servant, a persecuted one, put in prison for Christ's sake, and you said I should be more cautious. But you did not stand by my side and take a share of the blame and bear with me reproach for the truth of God's sake. You see, this is a very terrible winnowing fan to some of you cowardly ones whose main objective it is, I'm sorry, whose main objective is to get all you can and hold 
It fasts, but it is a fan which frequently must be used. Some may deceive you, deceive you and spare you, but by the grace of God, I will not. Charles Spurgeon said that. I didn't say it. Folks, a heart that has no desire, that has no desire to help the weak, is a heart that must, that whose transformation must be questioned. We can talk theology all day. We can talk doctrine all day. But if our talking doesn't lead to an active love, then our talking must be questioned. Lastly, the difference. What's the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous? I said we would get back to this ideal of having received the blessing of the Father. What does that mean? The unrighteous and the righteous aren't saved because of what they do. Again, it reveals our nature, but it does not save us. The righteous and the unrighteous are saved because of what's been done for them. The blessing of the Father is how they receive salvation. The blessing of the Father is his very son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You're not saved by works. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you hear that? You are not saved by works, but you were created for them. You were saved for them. You were redeemed for them. You are not saved by your works, but new life existing you to produce works. New life existing you to love those who have yet to be loved. New life existing you to reach those who have yet to be reached. New life existing you to feed those who are hungry, to clothe those who are naked. New life exists in you to visit those who have yet to be visited. New life existing you to do righteousness. We don't, you're right, we don't, we don't serve in order to be saved. We don't serve to receive eternal life. But we do serve because we've been given eternal life. You're right, we don't, we, 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 we serve or we get to serve because we have received life. We get to give of our earthly inheritance and wealth because we've been given life. Jesus gave us life. And so as we come into, re as we come into the reality of what he's given us, shouldn't that just simply shape what we give? Now, when we started this two weeks ago, there probably was questions about whether or not this was a political sermon. 
or political series of sermons. Because we're talking about justice and, you know, the hot topic around politics is justice. The hot topic around justice is politics. And as you see, we have not talked about politics for the last two weeks. I will share a few practical applications, however, with you this morning as we think about what we've talked about in light of politics. And the only reason I want to share this is because it seems like so many Christians find their identity in this now. And so I want to help disciple us through this, right? So I'm going to take a few dangerous minutes, some that I may regret later, to share a few applications about how we should approach politics in light of all the things that we've discussed, discussed this morning. First thing is, don't make the ballot box absolute. The ballot box is not where you can do the most good. Neither is it where you hand off all of the moral imperatives that the gospel has given you. All the commands of the gospel. Feed the poor. Clothe the, clothe the uh, naked. Uh, uh, provide home for the homeless. A lot of times the reason why we struggle with politics is because we've given all of those responsibilities to our political ballots. And so we say, well, you know, I, right, I'm, based on what I'm voting, I'm determining whether or not I love Jesus or not. Why? Because you think that everything that's supposed to be done that God has called you to do is related to your political affiliation, and it's not. Don't make the ballot box absolute. Love justice, love mercy, feed the hungry, visit the prisoner, visit the sick, care for the orphans, care for the widows, support the poor, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, and do that apart from the ballot has no affiliation as to whether or not you're Democrat or Republican to do those things that God has called us to do. Stop grading your commitment to the gospel based on how you vote. But don't make the ballot box absolute, but don't make it trivial either. In other words, take it as if it's important. Because in a country like ours, where the people determine who leads us, we have to treat these matters seriously. We determine who leads us. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 29, he, God gives instruction to his people that are, that are exiles in Babylon, and he tells them that as exiles, they are to seek the welfare of the city for where they have been sent into exile and to pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in his welfare you will find your welfare. So God tells us as as, as, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom who's, who, who, who know that this place is not our home to still seek the welfare of this place. And so, yeah, we shouldn't treat the ballot box as absolute, but neither should we cast it away and treat it as trivial either. We should look to figure out, okay, what role do I play in making sure that the welfare of this city and the welfare of this state and the welfare of this nation and this world is in better hands? Are you tracking with that? Now, that means that all of us are going to come to a, a different place sometimes, but what I, what I want you to do is I want you to think through that place, which leads me to my next point of application. Don't make the ballot box a reflection of gullibility. Make your decisions not based on what you hear people saying. Make your decisions on based, based on whether or not you actually believe them to do it. 
Don't just make your decision because, oh, well, you know, I mean, I've always voted Republican or I've always voted Democrat or, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, sign the dotted line, just check it all the way down. Even though I don't even believe the things that the people are saying on either side. Don't just give your vote away. Don't just give your politics away. Don't make your, polit- don't make your politics a reflection of gullibility. Matthew chapter 10 tells us that we should be sheep in the midst of wolves. He's sending us out, rather, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. In other words, this world is a perilous place. This world is a dangerous place. This world is a crooked place with a lot of crooked people. So be wise as you navigate it. And then lastly, don't make the ballot box a reflection of your selfishness. Some people go to the ballot box claiming to fight for justice and mercy, but if you were to search their heart, what you would find is that they're really fighting for their self-interest. And that's what's ultimately driving them. Some folks say, I'm pro-life, but really they're pro-tax cut. Some people say, I'm pro-immigrant, pro-immigrant, when really I'm pro-higher wages for me. Let no one seek his own good, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but the good of his neighbor. You know where that's also included? At the ballot box. Christians in being people of mercy and justice should go to the ballot box praying the following prayer. Lord, how can I best see the welfare of this city and nation or, or best seek the welfare of this city and nation with my vote? See, I'm not as interested in your voting habits For the sake of biblical justice, I'm more interested in challenging you how you go to the poll. What are your secret motivations that drive you to vote the way you do? What I want you to do is I want you to walk with biblical mercy and let that shape how you go. Walk with justice and walk with biblical righteousness and let that shape how you go. And then once you go and you drop your ballot in there, don't think that's the end of it for you. Now go and do the work of a Christian. In your, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your nation, in your world. 